I never thought about how until I was here. Having got here, it suits me in, in many ways. It is a little on the, on the edge of things. I think even its natives would say that. A cut price crowd, urban yet simple, dwelling where only salesmen and relations come. And across there, over the estuary of the Humber, is Yorkshire, and you can just see Hull where Philip Larkin lives. It's a place of thunder, clouds, dark red brick Georgian streets where they survive, and steeples and domes. And beyond Hull was the North Sea. If anywhere's the end of England and the end of land, it's Hull and beyond Hull. Welcome to the podcast. It's a podcast about the culture of Hull, what we do and who we are. Welcome, Vitame. Ladies and gentlemen's and everyone's in between or besides. You are listening to the supreme drumming skills of the wickedly talented one and only Mr. Joshua Meredith, as heard in the sublime Fly Girls Films delectable trailer for Us Against Whatever. An electrifying cabaret about the places we keep in our hearts. It is the latest and current show of Middle Child Theatre Company, playing currently at the Everyman Theatre Liverpool, but soon to be performed before your very eyes in in our own city. In our own city of culture of Hull at the Truck Theatre, where it will play nightly from the 27th of March until only the 3rd of April. Get your skates on. Yeah, all all right, enough of that. Thank you. Like all middle child shows, creating us against whatever has been a team effort. James Frewer has made the music, theatre maker Nastasia Sommers has come aboard as collaborator, But the writer is Maureen Lennon. Maureen is from Hull, and after university at Bristol, she and Tabitha Mortyboy formed Bellow Theatre to tell brave and stirring stories of the downtrodden, the forgotten, the excluded or the silenced, often women. Their shows are rooted in legend, folk and fairy tales, and you will stumble upon them in unusual places, often outside and unplugged on a DIY stage with acoustic music. Alongside this, Maureen has worked with Payne's Plough, Hull Truck, Sheffield and other leading UK theatres. We talk about how she charts her course from idea to story to stage. And of course, she tells us all about the show itself. And I offer Maureen an unspiced chip from my shoulder and we tuck into the rabbit hole stew of identity, accent, class and being a northerner in the south. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Matt, two yeah. sec, pop's fine, swearing. Don't worry about it. Okay, great, because yeah. I'm it's very sweary. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, 
was the first time you saw Hole on stage or screen? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember clearly. I remember... Um, so I was like really obsessed with going to the theatre when I was little. And I remember going to Spring Street and seeing like their panto or something. Right. I can't remember what it was. I, I think I was pretty small, but yeah. that was like Hull accents and stuff. And then I remember seeing a version of Wuthering Heights that they did there. And it was like two people with like 50 hats, but it was right. set in Hull. It was like, it was Wuthering Heights, but it was about fishing. Oh, right. um, I can't remember it clearly. I think I was pretty young. And then we did go and see some other stuff like um, in London and stuff. Some of my dad's family's from London. So we did sometimes used to go up there and see um, like some Shakespeare or something. But my first memory of theatre is seeing it done in Hull with like stories set in Hull, even if they're not originally about Hull. Do you right. know what I mean? So yeah. it was kind of the other way around it. I don't remember it distinctly which which one that was. I just thought it was a kind of thing. It didn't occur to me till much later that you couldn't do that. It was weird to be doing theatre or, for example, Shakespeare in Hull accent. Right. And I remember it wasn't until I got older and like into secondary school and like um, or college and was seeing more kind of like London theatre or like touring productions. I was like, oh, that's quite weird. Like. But I do remember distinctly after having that realisation, the first time I ever saw something that was about Hull when I wasn't in Hull. And that wasn't until uni and it was a uni production. I was in Bristol mm. and I remember being really excited about it and it was Honeymoon Suite, the Richard Bean play. Yeah. And they were talking about Hull in it. I can't remember. I don't think it's set in Hull, is it? It's set in Bridlington or something. Brid, yeah. Yeah, but they kind of like yeah. talk about Hull as yeah. well, but in it. And I remember being really excited and I was like, oh my God, I didn't know this was a thing because... It wasn't really until I went to Bristol that I suddenly realised what being from Hull might mean in the outside world and like how that suddenly became your whole persona, like mm. there's a girl from Hull. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And for example, um, mum and dad are from Bristol and they don't have Hull accents. So growing up, I never had a like really strong Hull accent. Mm. So growing up in Hull, I was posh. And like, I thought, I used to do bits of acting when I was at school and stuff, that's kind of how I got into theatre. And I thought I was, I've always thought I was RP when I acted. And it was a real culture shock to me to go to Bristol. I didn't think I had a whole accent and then no one could get over how northern I was because it's, it's quite, it's quite posh Bristol, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's quite, or like, you know, not, yeah, there are some posh people there, but also there are not a lot of people with regional accents. And I think Bristol well, in particular, just seems to have a lot of wealth attached to it mm. but yeah and I remember going and getting cast in my first play there and they rang me and uh, they said like in the student drama scene or whatever and I was really excited I was like I'm in and then they were like we really love that you played the character with a strong northern accent and I was like what I was like didn't do out. I was like, I was just speaking. And I thought I'd done it like RP, like it was quite a posh character. And then I was like, oh, Maureen, like you really have no awareness of how you're talking. So there was two realisations that I was like, maybe you shouldn't be an actor because you can't hear yourself. And uh, I was like, maybe um, this is going to be a different ride to the one you've been on. Mm. But yeah, but then in my third year, they did a production of um, Honeymoon Suite. And honestly, I couldn't get over it. I was just in the audience when they were chatting about Hull and I'm, I think I was annoying everyone, but I was just loving all those references, yeah. yeah. And that felt really exciting. Yeah, when I went away, I, I didn't speak very clearly. I, was, I think like a lot of young guys, you sort of want to sound a bit cool. And plus, that plus the Hull accent, meant that people just had to ask what I was saying mm. all the time. They were like, sorry, I didn't get that. Can you say that again? I just didn't understand that. And it was embarrassing. 
So I had to kind of like cultivate this, what I thought was like RP when I went to the National Youth Theatre. Now I'm in London, I have to, I have to kind of speak this way, otherwise I will not be able to communicate. And yeah, you do realise with a bit of perspective and distance, you get a sense of being from a place. Yeah. More, more so than ever. And I think I kind of went the opposite way with that in that, um, but that was kind of quite false. And that felt, until I came back here, I didn't feel that centred in, in that, yeah, so like I said, my parents are from Hull. I've never had that strong a Hull accent. Um, it never occurred to me that being from Hull was something. And like, um, my mum and dad, like my mum works at the uni, like, um, so I'd always kind of been this, that type of person. And then suddenly I was at uni and I was like, Hull, and I like almost performed that identity. Like, I think I even like almost got a thicker accent and I was right. almost like playing that card a bit in a way that um, I didn't notice for a while. And then I was like, oh, this is how you're trying to not make yourself be bothered by what other people are seeing. You're like playing it up, but that's also not truthful. So it took me a while to find that balance of being like, you can be lots of things do you know what I mean yeah. yeah we sort of live in we live in an age of identity and people go to like really strong identifiers mm. the Hull is a, is a working class city for the most part it's one of the you know most kind of uh, strong labour cities in the country I think but then I'm not working I'm lower middle class but that means something different in the north to what it does in the yeah, south yeah exactly so I'm not in auditions and stuff do I kind of play that up because I'm not middle class they can hear that and see that I was sort of in this kind of middle place. I think it's really hard. I think we need some more identifiers because I, I would never say it would be totally disingenuous for me to claim a working class identity. I don't have one. It wasn't my upbringing. Um, and I like, it would never have occurred to me. Yeah. And I don't think most people who knew me here would ever occur to them. And then suddenly, yeah, I remember arriving at uni and being like, well, I'm middle class. Like, that's fine. But that kind of seemed ridiculous to some of the middle class people I was encountering. And I was like, but I aren't you. Like, you've got a yacht. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. what, how, like, to me, you're like, um, and they'd be like, well, you know, it's not like my dad's an oil tycoon or whatever. And mm. I'd be like, okay, well, I don't know. How far are we going here in yeah. the States? Like, um, yeah, I think it, it, it means different things in different places, doesn't it? Yeah, I it think does. being middle class in Hull means something different to what it does elsewhere and oh, again and again yeah um I mean, nobody shops at john lewis in hull but that's the middle class thing isn't it i don't know what john lewis was i don't think we do we have a john we no we a... do no we do we no in there's uh, the nearest is in leeds oh right and i think that means you're definitely not middle class um, but i think the conversation like this let's not go down rabbit hole with this but like the rest of the country does yeah, need to have a conversation <laughs> about um how it interprets regional accents yeah because that's what i think it is if you've got a slight regional accent you can get put into an identity which isn't really yours to claim. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that can be, you kind of almost have to point it out to people. Mm. I was in Foils um, just before an audition, just looking for some book. And you know, they have like kind of the display books where they're trying to flog the new thing on one of the floors. And it just suddenly caught my eye and it said, how to lose your accent. As if like, this is the answer to all your problems if you work in business, you know. You can only get on if you lose your accent. I'm like, I was fucking livid about this. It's, it's almost like, oh, well, yeah. I, I know you've got a nice accent, but really, if you want to get on, you, you sort of need to lose this. And there's a whole book about how to lose your accent. And there are people paying, you know, hundreds of pounds to, to kind of cultivate some neutral RP mm. for the purposes of what? I mean, yeah. it really pisses me off. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you ever feel like that when you're acting? Like, um so do you alter how you present when you walk into an audition aside from the character? We'd be like, 
Or will you always just walk in and be you and then do your character? Or will you think, I'm going to have to manage how I, like, introduce myself? I think for a while, especially in the run-up and just after 2017, I'd I'd sort of talk about it all really proudly. Mm. And then I I sort of worked out that people didn't really care. Yeah. Or they see you as provincial. And it's not, that's not your friend. They're not going to be impressed, really. Unless they happen to have gone to whole uni or they lived there for a bit. And you do come across people like that. But I just kind of suddenly calculated that I shouldn't really make a big deal of it. And I, I, that makes me sad. That's what I just, I, honestly, I, not even, like, I love Hull, which will come as a surprise to no one hearing that. All my friends from uni get bored of how much I talk about yeah. Hull. But it's not even about that. Like, I genuinely have such admiration for people that manage to be in this, career and live and work in London because I, I can't understand how you financially do it. I don't think you can. It's, it's like some kind of defying gravity thing now. Yeah, you, you it just seems, you must have to, I mean, I think I work hard, but like nowhere near that level. I'm not sure I would have the creative energy to yeah. make that rent and then also be doing things. It just seems like a kind of such an effort. I think slowly we're seeing people who are going to, who can afford to go to drama school, pay for auditions. And who ended up getting cast, just to, who've got a bit of money and a bit of family money behind them. Mm. That's the sort of people who can afford to exist down there. Mm. And uh, otherwise, you're just absolutely just trying to keep your head above water. Mm. How? I don't know. I love London. I really do. I love going and working there and, and spending time there. But you look at kind of figures, you think, I just can't do that. How would you do that? Mm. Unless you're just the luckiest person with some kind of little job somewhere that you can make a lot of money from and then service this side of your career but yeah like you say we could go down a rabbit hole with that um <laughs> yeah you went to bristol i like all that's a really famous course yeah a lot of people who are huge in this industry went there mm. um did you ever consider going to hull or did you want to get it's out it's so weird you know i didn't consider going to hull and now i think why but i think the narrative was kind of that even though i knew drama was good at hull mm. the narrative was kind of a bit like if you were staying in Hull for uni, I don't know, maybe it was an internal thing, but I felt like it was a failure. Right. And actually, like, I had a great time at Bristol and I met, you know, some amazing people, but I wasn't actually that happy. I found the uh, transition really hard. Mm. And now I think, well, you could have just stayed at home, but somehow I felt like that was a real failure mm. if I'd have done that. So no, I didn't. I went to Bristol, which is kind of an amazing city, like, um, in many ways. It's a bit of a weird city because it does feel very separate. Like, there's this really wealthy bit of it. And that's kind of where most of the uni is. And then slowly you, like, get into the other bits and you're like, oh, this is a bit more ordinary. And then you get right out and then you're like... Like, my mum's from Fish Ponds, which is, like, a council state, very, like, um, Orchard Park or something. That's where she grew up. But it took me about the third year till I managed to get out there. And then I was like, oh, right. I was like, this feels very different to where I've been the last two years. And, like... So exploring it took a little bit of a time, I think. Um, if I'm honest, the outside stuff at Bristol is amazing. There is such an energy and like people are doing so much. Mm. And I did loads of that and I learned loads there. Um, I really value that. I did English and drama and I loved the English course. Um, the drama course, some bits of it I really loved, but it was drama and film, which just stupidly I hadn't really uh, realised before I went. And I remember going to have my interview to go. That was when I realised because my full interview was on film. Well, I'm, I don't really watch films. I'm not big into film. 
Um, and I remember having to blag it with a theatre production. I'd seen the National Theatre production of The Waves, yeah. which was like, use loads of projection and stuff. So I was like, I'm just going to talk about this and pretend that. Um, I'm like, oh, it's almost like they were making a film. That was my whole angle on the interview because I didn't have any films to talk about. I kept trying to talk about contemporary films and I was like, oh, I've seen Love Actually. <laughs> um, so that was a bit of a surprise, but actually I really enjoyed that um, in the end. It just took me a while. I'm I'm really technophobic, so the idea that someone would ask me to speak about a camera angle or something like that really freaks me out. But once I realised you could kind of do it a bit like a text, yeah. then I was all right with it. The actual drama bit of it, I found a little bit reductive, if I'm honest, because there was a real focus on performance art and, like, there was a kind of like what well, I, I felt and Tabitha I run Bella with kind of felt this too and she's a writer as well and I think that's what drew us together yeah. that uh, if you were making or you were interested in kind of narrative mm-hmm. and story um, and you know more uh, kind of new writing and things like that you were being somehow prescriptive mm-hmm. and that that was like one thing and you were telling the audience this one thing and that wasn't very cool or that wasn't um it wasn't that respected within the department. I found that quite frustrating as someone who wanted to write and, you know, basically loves story. Story's my whole thing. And mm. I think I think it's a bit of um, a misconception of text as well, just personally, because the idea that a play should just be telling you one thing, well, that's just a bad play then, isn't it? Yeah. Like, so, yeah, it was a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I... Yeah, I, I definitely came out of it completely different and... Like, I learned so much from it. I really enjoyed it. Um, but it wasn't quite the course I think I'd imagined that it would be. Did you go in with an idea of what you wanted to do when you came out? Or did it change while you were there? Yeah, it did change a bit. I think in, like, the pit of my stomach, I wanted to be a writer. But I hadn't... Basically, I, when I was little, I used to write loads. I've always been obsessed with reading and, like... Um, like I think I'm addicted to reading. Still now, like, I can't... If I was on a bus and I didn't have something to read, even if it was the back of a cereal packet, I would just lose my mind. I can't handle it. Um, it it doesn't really matter what it is, but I have to have, like, content. Um, And I used to do little bits of writing. I remember, like, writing a novel in year four or something in an exercise book. I I probably didn't make any sense, but I remember being... And then I had a teacher in school, who I won't name, who told me that I was very clichéd. And that I was very clever. I was good at like writing essays, but I shouldn't write creatively, mm. basically, is what it implied. How old were you at that point? I think I was year nine, and we'd done like something, and he was like, oh, it's not. So then I just I just really like took that. I was like, okay, like I am good at like analyzing stuff and things like that. But um, so I'd like not done a lot of writing. So I'd, I'd kind of got into acting, and I had thought for a while I want to be an actor. So I kind of went to Bristol and did like English because I was quite academic as well and drama and then I was like oh well maybe like I'll be a teacher or maybe I'll be an actor or like I wasn't quite sure and then while I was at Bristol I started doing some bits of like quite terrible very earnest like um writing about my feelings and stuff in you know and then um did some bits of writing uh, for like new writing nights and stuff they did and then they did a course with Bristol Old Vic and the dramaturg there uh, called Studio Scripts or something they'd called it. And you could apply to be on that and applied and did that for a couple of years. And that was really helpful just in terms of like, you just wrote a short play and then they did it in Bristol Vic Studio um, as a reading or whatever. Um, but you get feedback and like, 
you could suddenly it was like, oh, you don't just have to be good at this. You could start thinking about it like a craft. Mm. So yeah, it did very much change. And then when we were coming out of uni, me and Tabitha who was also right kind of from Bellow, and we were like, well, we're gonna just start doing some bits mm. and see what sticks. Um, yeah, because I was also interested in directing, so we were kind of just like, we wrote some shows together and then directed a few together and then some on our own and then some top of them, we just kind of mixing and matching like that. Yeah. Because I've seen Bellows shows and they're really distinctive. Um, they're sort of folk and there's legend and folk, like roots in them. Um, and you talk about a DIY aesthetic. When you sort of set up Bella, when you formed, did you have like a mission statement? Did you think that is what we wanted to look and sound like and feel like? Or did it just evolve? Yeah, it just evolved really. So we, when we were setting it up, we were like, and the first show we did wasn't like that at all. It was, a, it was just a kind of straight new writing play that Tabitha had written called Billy Through the Window. Mm. Um, but I think what we kind of developed as we were going along, we were like, what can we do really well? Mm-hmm. And what's our interest for the company? Mm-hmm. And then as we kind of got more developed in sort of artists, we're like, okay, and what do we want to do outside? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of about what skills we thought we were bringing to that company as a whole and can do. And so we always knew it was about writing and it was about story, basically, was what we were really interested in. Mm-hmm. And those kind of things, like an interest in folk and um, kind of uh, legend and um, folk tales as well and music... And this kind of DIY thing sprung out of the fact that none of us are technical in the company. We just don't like it. And then just our own interests, really. And like what therefore worked as an aesthetic and going together. Um, And it was a bit like me and Tabitha both increasingly do more writing outside of the company. But it was like, well, if we're going to write a script and it needs a bigger budget and, you know... um, lighting design and like lots of things that uh, that's quite complicated it was like well why would we try and run that in the company that's not our knowledge mm-hmm. whilst this felt like something that quite playfully we could create on the small scale which mm-hmm. is something I think we've all always been interested in and just I think also if you go right back to things like folktale and legend it allows you to explore what you're doing, writing, particularly as a woman, like writing within story, because I find that really interesting. And like the crossover of like oral tales and written tales and how they often feed into like even brand new stories that we're telling today, Mm -hmm. but what we're getting from them, what sort of archetypes is something that I just, I think as like female writers is really interesting to explore and how, how can you, you know, it's a bit like what Angela Carter did or something. How can you, uh, almost like reclaim and make yourself a, a history of stuff that you're working in and also give yourself the tools that can be empowering and doesn't mean you're um you're not acknowledging some of those things that we've all internalized i think do you think a lot of folk tales because i've never really thought about this but when i've seen the stuff that you've done like at assemble fest which works really well because you, you can be unplugged mm. you can be in daylight um that aesthetic works really well in those mm. sort of environments do you think the sort of folk and legend has kind of filtered down over the ages through a sort of male prism and the, the women's perspective has kind of been erased? It's really, it's really complicated. So um, we actually did our dissertation on this for uni and right. it was about female storytelling. And it was basically like, is the oral form mm-hmm. empowering? And we went back and looked at it and we were like, it's not quite as simple 
it would be a neat tale if it was like basically our all storytelling was a female-led form and then we wrote it down and it became through the male gaze right. and it is a little bit that that is some of it once things started it was, it was very common for uh, women to be storytellers within society mm-hmm. orally um and like e- even within de- like activities that have traditionally been female they like open themselves up more to story and that's how things have been passed on and then there are like clear places like um kind of with the grim fairy tales where they were um taken and like changed and written down and fixed in ways that were um sometimes uh, less empowering for women right. however basically because it's so mutable because there are so many forms of these legends it's hard to decide when they became into being it's hard to fix them down and basically the whole point is that everyone told their own it's not that clear because there could be loads where actually you know um there's a version of goldilocks which is much earlier which probably was told orally where um the woman's like impaled on a spike and then like sent out and you know that feels worse i think it's, it's kind of more complicated than that i suppose what happens as they go down is it becomes less free and we get the idea more of ownership of tales and more of fixing things down and like that's written so it can't be changed and therefore we kind of create archetypes in ways that it's harder to reclaim and retell for yourself as a teller. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the power is in um, kind of taking that back and saying, well, I want a story that does this so can can we make that happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the Washing Women's story. That was really uh, great fun. Yeah, Fantastic, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, the fun we're thinking about. I don't know if we will, um, but I really want to do the the prequel that we did to that. But we only ever did once, right? And it was our first show, really. And we did it on about four hundred quid, um, and like no, not not enough rehearsal, and we'd never worked with music before and stuff. But which was the other sister's story from the Washing Women's Tale, and it was about pies and meat, and she ends up kind of. I won't give the game away, right, but yeah. um, Sweeney Todd sort of husband doesn't come out of it too well. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> right. sounds brilliant. Um, music is clearly important. It seems quite important to mm. a lot of the whole companies in different ways. Like Fru's music for middle child is sort of electric and sort of guitar driven. There's a bit more musical theatre, I, I would say, with with Silent Opera, the stuff I've seen. But yours is, you know, you can see people playing the violin mm. and it's, it's unplugged and it absolutely suits your aesthetic is that a key part for, for Bella yeah definitely yeah. which is hilarious because I'm so unmusical and tone deaf but I, I think it's kind of like about getting back to those storytelling roots mm. and using what you have and you can carry around with you and mm. you can um and then why wouldn't you use a like I love the fiddle or Tabitha does some beautiful kind of acoustic stuff on the guitar yeah. And yeah, it's just about what can help amplify the story and create that atmosphere. Um, And I think there's something kind of like the audience really getting that with you when they can see that you're just making stuff from what is there and your bodies and your voices and instruments and the story is being built by those words and you can go anywhere. Yeah, I think that's really important. Although it does mean that... um, So Ellie, who we worked with a lot on the kind of Assemble Fest shows and stuff and is our fiddle player and also is kind of just a brilliant pianist and singer and all-round musician but she is so patient with me in rehearsals because <laughs> me me trying to direct that is just hilarious so um I remember once Charlie just couldn't hold it together because I've given a note like something like oh Ellie can that be a bit more like maybe like a moonless night uh, or like 
Um, and then we're traveling into like a misty morning. And like Ellie just be like, yeah, okay. And then I'll be like, oh, could that be a bit like crunchier? <laughs> and she'll just be like, okay, fine. Whilst I think someone else has just hit me in the face. <laughs> I listened again to um, The Way Home that you did for Payne's Plough. Oh, yeah. Um, so I saw Come to Where I'm From, which is basically a scheme that Payne's Plough do. I'm going to do a link to the, the app because you can download and listen to stuff. And it, they go to different parts of the country and they get writers from that part of the country to write something sort of set there or about there, you know, of, of, of Hull in this case. So Joe Hakim did it, um, Lydia did one, Tom Wells did one. And I, I was there in the studio at Trunk and it really felt, to me that night, it really felt like a point of evolution for, for writing mm. in Hull. It felt like we'd moved away a little bit, moved on from just telling the kind of the well-worn stories, the big Hull stories where Hull is the, the, the central character in mm. lots of ways, to something where Hull sort of went back into the background. It was still of Hull, but it, it, you had the confidence to kind of move slightly away from that. And it was a story set on a bus. Um, and it was just really fantastic. Someone's moved now, got off, so finally we get to sit down. I feel more relaxed now when facing away from her eyes, her stare. I feel less exposed, more prepared. It's none of a business, I think, what I do, what I'm like. If I've chosen to work nine to five and go out on a Saturday night. Position, there's not position anymore, something weird now. Toffs, roots, jukes, welly, downing jelly babies, having chips from Yorkshire Pizza, which found a rat and changed its name, but no one gives a shit because at 3am you'd eat a pizza off the street if you found it, probably, wouldn't you? I mean, I think I have, actually, probably. And I like it because it's like a communion, in it. It's like a reunion, in it? Like, if I'd have seen her on Saturday night in there, in heels tottering down the stairs, would have probably danced on dodgy vodka and ranked tequila shots. Would have probably said, hiya, how are you? It's so good to see you, remember, school. But we haven't. We didn't. We're just nine rows away on a dank stagecoach bus. I didn't notice straight away, but it's, it's kind of inverse. Yeah, it sort of is. Yeah, that was totally accidental, really. Um... I think it was, it was just about the rhythm of it mm -hmm. and the rhythm of um, the, the voices of it. It's got two characters in of those two characters. Mm -hmm. Just kind of naturally was carrying that along in a, in a way that I have tried to do before, but I think if you set out to write something, in it can become very forced. You're playing Guess the Rhyme and stuff. Yeah, but that was a, like, that was a magical project. I actually, I just, I really loved doing that. Mm -hmm. I think it... I remember it was it was a really gorgeous night. So many people came out to the studio, didn't mm. they? And it did feel. And also, I think um, it's just credit to Payne's Plough, like um, being asked to write something about home. That was kind of all we given. It was just like write something about home for you and Hull, but not even necessarily Hull. If that didn't, you know, all of us that is our home. So, and um, knowing you were going to read it as well, it somehow made it feel really personal not not and I don't mean necessarily autobiographical but I just mean kind of intimate in a way that really seems to connect with it that idea really if an actor reads it they had a little bit of their thing and that can bring things alive but it was absolutely connected to you mm. um, it to was hilarious because we all were dead nervous though because we were all having to read like I had a big sweat patch on the back. I was like oh my god and then we got in front and you could just tell I was like can tell it's four writers sat here because we're like oh do we have to stand up like what's gonna happen we were not loving them stage lights but uh yeah it, it felt really it felt significant that collection of people it just felt like we'd moved on a, a little bit um and that was exciting i thought oh brilliant we'll get to the next stage now stage that other big cities get to 
you know, when they become a bit more mature as a kind of collective of, of theatre makers. Do you have a do you have a way of working that's do you have a, an approach to writing that you always go to or does it change depending on the project? Um every time I think I've got a system then that seems to no longer work. Right. Not really. I would say in general, but this isn't always true. I'm sort of an outside in writer. Um it's quite rare for me to be like this is my story and be like, so some, some people are like, I know that I want to write a story about this man and like he finds a child and then they're going to go on an adventure and he adopts him or something. And they're like, they know the story and then they're like kind of figure out the rest. Mm-hmm. Normally I'd be like, I want to write something about, um, I don't know, an issue or, or like something I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. And then I, I kind of do research and I find slowly maybe a character or something yeah. and then that it kind of comes from there occasionally it works the other way around but it's rarer for me right so you start off with you think right i want to talk about this does that change do you get kind of like dragged away think i've got to follow this this route this yeah sometimes up. i think if you're not open to it so you can be like oh i want to write about i don't know um uh, women in the nhs or something mm-hmm. and then you might do loads of research and write about it and then you could very easily write a play that isn't really about that but has come from that mm. and then I think if you try and hew that back in it's pretty bad you have to accept if, if it takes you somewhere else and that feels like what's right for the story then you kind of you just have to accept that yeah. and that, that the rest of it has just kind of been what, what has influenced you I have done it where I've been like I really want to write about this issue and then I've tried to write about it and it's become about something else and then I've tried to like put the the thing back in and then it's awful. (laughs) But I I never think it's wasted. Like it's just all, I suppose it's like, what is your lens on that? Mm. You know, in the same way, like James Graham is amazing at at looking at a political issue and somehow taking a sideways door in. And you're like, well, that's not the story I would have written about that. Um, I suppose it's kind of like that for everything. You you find your story and it might not be exploring exactly what you thought it was going to do at the beginning, but you kind of have to accept if that's your lens, then that's yeah. what it is. Well, I guess you've had the, the liberty to do that and, and sort of say, right, this is what I've ended up making, here it is. Do you find that there are theatres where they say, we absolutely want this, really, if you can kind of... It's never happened to me where I've been asked to do a project and then the project's gone somewhere and um, they've been like... I, I think you either accept that you want to continue with that project and that's what that creative's going to do, or you probably need to find different creative and that's kind of fine as well if it turns out it's not a, a good fit and I guess when people have seen your work they kind of know they're not blind they go this is what you do we love it keep doing that yeah whatever your take on this is then we're cool with that yeah and I like I really really I know everyone says this I mean why wouldn't you but like I do really love working collaboratively I find the I'm not very good, I'm not the sort of writer who, and I'm trying to get better at it, because you kind of need to, but I'm not great at being like, this is what I want to do, and then going away and doing it on my own, and then getting to a point where I've drafted something enough to like send it out. Mm-hmm. I'm much more used to kind of like, we're starting on this together, and we're like all mates, and like, what what is it we want to do, and, yeah. and trying to like kind of share, it, it somehow loads easier when you're trying to work towards a shared vision with other people. Mm-hmm than having to be like, yeah, I don't particularly like making all the decisions on my own. Right. Um, I think the, the absolute dream, the, the way the process always works best is when you have a director who's also a good dramaturg and you kind of like set on the path right at the beginning together about what this could be. And then 
you're like in that process all the way together. Um, I think that works even better than when, for example, which is great quite often on like development schemes and stuff, you're working with a dramaturg, mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily committed to that project and you haven't necessarily conceived of it together. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're coming at it from slight different angles and I suppose the states are a little bit different. So it's just a different way of working, but like the one where I'm always like, yes, this is going to work really well is where it's kind of doing that hand in hand. When I wrote these down, I thought, oh, these sound great questions. And then when you actually read them, they sound really pompous. <laughs> but fuck it, I'm going to read it and I can always cut it out. Great. So I've noticed how diverse the city has become since moving to the HU5 area. Uh, HU5 is just to sort of northwest of the city centre. And I've spent a lot of time like socially around here, but living here, you realise how diverse Hull is becoming. And it, it just seems high time that what we write about and the stories we tell reflect that. Mm. And it hasn't really happened yet until now. And you know, in the, in the context of Brexit and all the uncertainty and the rise of the far right, and from what I can gather about up against us against whatever, fucked up the title, it's called Us Against Whatever, that you're writing for and with Middle Child. It sounds like you're kind of hitting that head on. Tell us about it. When we started the project, um, Middle Child wanted to do something that was responding to Brexit mm. and I suppose also responding to the idea that we as a city uh, voted for Brexit uh, with quite a big majority and then also at the same time we're preparing and then did City of Culture yeah. and those two things came along together and they, they feel like quite different visions of the city. I suppose it was asking that question, are, are they different? Like, um, how do we decide what our future is in then? What were the things that have fueled the Brexit vote? And what, what did it mean here? I think it's really hard to write something about Brexit, as in, I, I don't think it means one thing. I think everyone wants the sort of state of the nation play. Mm. And I think that's almost like an outdated idea because I just think in order for us to move forward, Together, we have to acknowledge that those experiences are really different and actually we're pretty fractured and we can't have one thing that is going to speak for everyone mm. and we have to kind of listen to what... So what we kind of did was we were like, we're just going to look at Hull and what is it like to live in Hull and uh, we're not going to kind of look at the political in terms of the politicians and the kind of campaign and uh, even the media, all of which I think played a massive part in um, that whole thing, but we're not gonna look at that. We're gonna, we spoke a lot about Brexit felt like a really emotional thing. And I mean that whether you will leave or remain, like I don't mean it as a criticism, as in people didn't know what they voted for, it was emotional. I don't mean that at all. And, but I just mean, it felt like it was about what it meant to be living in this country and what our conception of that was and what our conception of the EU was and um, how we felt at home and all these things that are quite like emotional. I like found it really emotional. Like I remember the day after feeling like really high emotions and I was like, well, I want to somehow make something that is about that, that isn't about, you know, uh, actually what it means or what the trade laws are or, you know, but about kind of like that idea. So then we just kind of started looking around and chatting, really. And, yeah, I think the voice that Hull's allowed to speak with is a really interesting one. I think it's traditionally been, like, white and traditionally been quite male. And it feels like the city is beginning to kind of broaden out in terms of who is here. And it would be great if we could, like, reflect that and be like, you can speak for Hull, you know, if you've got... Um, 
a Polish accent that you can speak for Hull if you're from the Kurdistani community. That was kind of like, um, and you can speak for Hull if you're who we might expect to see on stage from times past. You know what I mean? Like, um, that was kind of our starting point. And then, so yeah, we just did a lot of thinking about that. And then the other thing to think is that, yeah, so it was just always going to be about Hull, and it's not even going to speak for all of Hull, I don't think even you can do that, but about like what we felt this was about for the city mm. and what we felt like it could mean for the future of the city. And we also wanted it to be something which was quite hard that didn't just say, well, we're really divided now and there's no way forwards. Because mm. um, it felt like there was a lot of talk about Brexit being a moment of empowerment or like people that had never voted before voted and you know people were kind of like quite invested in this and then as soon as it happened I think we quite got lost in like how is it actually going to happen and like what is everyone doing and the reasons perhaps that people who hadn't voted before had become invested in this there was like a, a tiny period of time when we talked and people you know perhaps some of London and stuff that were surprised and were like, oh, I can't believe this. Like, oh, we've actually really got to start listening to what the experience is like in these regions. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I can't believe I just said regions. I hate the term, the regions. But um, it's awful. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Terrible. But, you know, I mean, we've got to start listening to that. And then it just got totally lost and everyone forgot about that. And then everyone just started calling each other stupid. Mm -hmm. And um, we just really wanted to get away from that and be like, this is the like lived experience. This is what it's like to live this for all these different characters. And they all have very different experiences of it, but are all connected in that they're trying to live and work and be here in the city and they care about the future and they care about their own future. And they've perhaps all been, you know, a little bit fucked by some things that are not in their own control. So that's kind of what we wanted to do. I don't, and also we wanted it to be fun because everyone's got Brexit fatigue. Um, and we wanted it to be kind of joyful and accessible and, uh, like, you know, middle child's mission is a good night out. And we wanted it to feel very whole. So that's kind of where the whole karaoke thing comes from. Yeah, what's the karaoke? Because that sounds... I love karaoke. Yeah, and me I've too. I've read a bit of the blurb. So what part does karaoke play? Basically? So um, it, the whole play, pretty much, is set in a karaoke bar in Hull. Is there a particular um, in mind? So particular? we haven't named one, right. but I think we all, you know, yeah, imagine yeah. that street on Old Town, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're there. But yeah, originally I set the play in Cannon Junction on Bev Road, but right. um, unfortunately that's not a karaoke bar, so I had to move it. Also, we hadn't asked them, so I don't know if that would have been okay or not, um, just because that's a personal favourite of mine. Right. Um, that's where I had my 21st, actually, Is that hilariously. Where the train carriage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> And the barmaid is always absolutely fucked. <laughs> what, um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just, well, I haven't been in for a few years, but we used to go in all the time and she just used to give so much, you so much free booze away because she was just always just wasted. Sorry, Cannon Junction. Like, I don't know if you mind that I said that, but I'm really, I'm plugging you. Yeah. Um, I want to go. It sounds brilliant. Yeah. But now it's, yeah, so it's at a karaoke bar sort of in Old Town and all the action happens there. So at points, the characters do karaoke. Also, there's original music in it, obviously. And, uh, yeah, the audience should get to some karaoke as well. So you, wow. are, you are also in this um, karaoke bar, right. so uh, come along. And it's sort of karaoke meets cabaret, so the form is cabaret-esque, yeah. but using karaoke as its kind of driver. Mm. Yeah, so we're starting in Liverpool, and we're doing, like, four nights there, I think, and then we're heading to a truck. That's interesting. I always find it fascinating when you do... 
I've toured quite a few productions, and the reaction something gets in different places. Um, how did Liverpool vote? I mean, they... so it voted it in just right, okay. yeah, I which is interesting. Are yeah, very similar places. Yeah, yeah, so that's something we're kind of trying to play around with the, the play because it, it's just an interesting that difference when there are so many correlations between the two cities. And we're, we're facing Europe, you know, mm. and it's just it's extraordinary. So that'll be fascinating. And then are you going to take it anywhere? Middle Child do, well, a lot of theatre companies do do a thing. I know Silent Opera are going to sort of, they're taking it away from the well-known spaces. Are you going to take it into anywhere or technically will that not be practical? I think practical? as far as uh, I know in terms of the plan for it, this was a kind of real chance to do something at scale. So it's going into the main, the main houses. Yeah. And so in terms of design and also just like scale of show, I don't think it's necessarily that portable. Right outside of places without support and yeah. I think that's kind of deliberate for middle child in that it's a chance to see one it's a chance to kind of be really um ambitious in terms of that scale of show and two I suppose they've spent a long time building that audience yeah. um, and we'll still be doing stuff in those uh, spaces and it's kind of a chance or in my mind even to say do they follow you because I think if audiences won't follow us back into theatres, perhaps we should talk about theatres no longer, then theatres in terms of those traditional spaces feel a bit dead, don't they? Yeah. So I suppose that's a question we've all kind of got answered. Is it that people don't want to be in theatre spaces or is it once people know the work and they're like excited by it and they get that it's for them, mm. that they'll be like, cool, I can come here now. And that's what I really hope. And I hope that you walk in and it feels like a karaoke bar in Old Town and like you, you have that freedom. I suppose it's that's hopefully what it does. But yeah, I think, um, and I could be wrong, but it would be quite difficult to put it places without that kind of basically technical support. Cool. Milchild have got a bilingual website. They've got, you can, it's in Polish and English. It's clearly they're, they're trying to tap into this huge community and say, listen, we're going to write stuff about you and for you. How, how are you trying to get Polish people to come and see mm. this? Because clearly that's... Some yeah, so the Polish element's been really interesting. Not just Polish, obviously, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of engaging with that community in whole, because it is, you know, one of the largest. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's been really interesting. So that was kind of a thing from the offset when Paul first approached me. He was like, right, we want to do this. And we feel like also, like, let's not just presume it's this, like, it should also be about what it's like to be part of the Polish community and be experiencing this in whole. Yeah. And we kind of had to go find that out, because we didn't know, obviously. Um, so we did some great things. Magda was really helpful. Yeah. Um, Magda Moses, who yeah. works at Artlink. Great. Used to work at Truck. Yeah, and she was just ace as she is, you know, just yeah. like go, 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 and like started setting things up. And then Meg, who's a member of Middle Child's board, was just and has been throughout the whole process like an absolute angel. And so we did some things just in terms of meeting and chatting to people, they introduced us to a lot of people. I mean, Magda took us to one of her friend's 40th birthdays at one point, which is like a big Polish party, which was like very generous of them to have us just there like, oh, hello. <laughs> and then we did an R&D week that was really early on, that was kind of research-based, but with Meg and Magda in the room, mm -hmm. just chatting about that a lot. And then um, we went out to Poland twice as well. I suppose to get a feeling about like, where people had come from, what that culture was, um, to try and not just make this like, um, and I don't know if we, but to try and get a flavour of what that art is as well and what the theatre's like there and not make it feel odd that we just drop someone into like a well-made English play or like, you know, that's not really what Middle Child 
style anyway, but you know, to kind yeah. of just get a feel for that. And that was amazing. And uh, we went to two theatre festivals out there. And Meg set us up with like a schedule of meetings that was incredible. We met so many people. I would like Meg or Magda to plan my holidays <laughs> because they were so productive. And then, yeah, uh, at the kind of started making stage, I've been working with a great theatre maker called Nastasia, who's been down from London and been really helping with that side of the story and also with translation and stuff. So that's kind of what we've been doing. And then I suppose in terms of getting the audience in, it's more of just making sure that people really know that this is for them and mm. that it's been thought through for quite a long time mm -hmm. with those connections. And I think Middle Child have been doing that for a bit. You know, One Life Stand, um, they'd make, they always make sure all the posters and everything are also in Polish and go places where people can mm. see them. And So it'll be really interesting to see if people come. I hope that they There's do. There's only so much you can do, but they're doing that. Mm. And there are Polish people who, they've got kids here, you know, they're part of the fabric now. And if they think that their story's been told a little bit, and they, then you don't feel like a, it's like a transitory thing. Yeah, and like Meg did a thing with the Polish poets um, for Contain Strong Language that was like incredibly popular. And people were there, like people were excited, you know, they mm. want to get engaged. So I hope that we managed to reach them yeah. and that they come along. Just to wrap up, just a bit about the future, really. Is there a big story that you feel like you want to write at some point? Or do you just take each kind of project as it comes? Um, a bit of both, yeah. So there's a few things that I'm kind of mulling around. I want to and hopefully I'm doing, but a really big story about like female, what it's like to be a woman in Hull and kind of what that story is, that, that kind of female experience in, in like from loads of different aspects of the city. And, and then there's some like really small things that I want to write. I think scale's a really interesting one. Mm. So at the minute I'm writing kind of like a really small story about grief and uh, like a mother and daughter. And I, I, I suppose what I'm more excited about is, because um, as I said, it takes me quite a long time to come to story, but I think what I've got more and more excited about in the last kind of year or so is the thought that you could do stuff in different forms. Mm -hmm. I think that's really exciting. So it's like, it's more like I would love to write... Um, an epic, like something that felt like it was like uh, the Odyssey or something, mm. but in a contemporary, I would like to write something that is one person playing like 10 things about how can, I don't know, like I'm, I'm getting more and more interested in form and then finding out what the story is for that. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's always a fear that one day you'll wake up and you'll be like, I've just got nothing, nothing in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet. So wow. hopefully... Just quickly on that, I think I'd love to see some kind of epic scale thing about Hull on the dock stage with that backdrop, you know. Yeah, gorgeous. And yeah. if they can project onto the deep and stuff, I think oh, there's something like maybe Northern Broadsides or, I don't know, fuck it, why not? Middle Child, you just, they get a ton of money and they can make this amazing, a bit like, you know, um, Flood? The thing that, uh, oh, what was it called? Fuck, I know. Flood. It was in the dock at Victoria Dock. Flood, slung low, Flood. Um, about the water. Flood. Flo flood. It's called fucking flood. <laughs> it's about a flood. Um, and I just thought that that was like epic and there's a lot of tech and fire and stuff. But I imagine if, if something all came together and they did it on the stage at the dock, you know, as the, a bit like the Minak Theatre, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. That'd be fucking amazing. Yeah, I think that dock stage is really gorgeous. Yeah. It's such a beautiful space. Yeah. We're not really seeing what it can do. It's a big old space and I think it could be magic. Um, just one kind of final question. What do you want to see coming over Hull's cultural horizon? Oh, good question. Hmm. I think I would really love to see more 
and and this is something that we all um, have to grow and that middle child are doing loads of effort to do um, hats off to them but more diverting the artists that feel that they can live and work here mm-hmm. um, because I absolutely love the artistic community in Hull it's one of the things that really shocked me when I moved back here because I didn't really know anyone even though I was from here kind mm-hmm. of how supportive and lovely it was and felt like a place to make work mm. but I do think um, you know perhaps because it hasn't always been the most diversity mm. when you look around there isn't you know you're always balancing that out a little bit you're like I want to work with people here and I also want to make sure the stories are kind of reflective of and um, just in all the different ways that that means I would love to be able to make that happen and make it feel like that ecology is still really growing I think that would That's something that we need to kind of really keep pushing with after City of Culture. If I am lucky In a few young years from now I will stand On top of that Send all my love to that version of me. This is one of Bellow Theatre's songs from their 2017 show Bear Skin on Briny Waters. Um, it was written and is performed by Tabitha Mortyboy. Thanks, of course, to Maureen. Loved speaking to her. And uh, also a big thanks to Jamie at Middlechild and Katie at Fly Girl Films. Uh, for also letting us use their music earlier on. But don't worry, I will be back with my usual festival-grade EDM compositions in uh, future episodes. Also, thank you to James Grieve at Payne's Plough for letting us play that clip from uh, Maureen's performance at Come To Where I'm From in 2017. You can hear the rest of it and dozens more plays by writers from across the UK talking about the places that shaped them on the Come To Where I'm From app. Um... There are award-winning playwrights like James Graham on there, Morgan Lloyd Malcolm, Roy Williams, Mike Bartlett, April DeAngelis, Tom Wells, and many first-time writers asking if home really is where the heart is. It's a great app, um, and it's, there's tons of stuff on there. Do download it, have a listen. And of course, thanks to you. Yeah, even you, mate, uh, <laughs> for pressing play on these podcasts. I really appreciate you taking the time to have a listen. And, uh, and support it. There's of course more to come, but that is it for now. So uh, until next time, ta-ra. Ooh.